All right, so just like I asked you to last week, uh, I'm going to ask you to you know, put your phone away unless you're using it for Scripture this morning. Uh, turn your chair towards the stage. It's kind of weird because I'm, I'm teaching you, but I see the back of like half of your heads because I know you're, you're tuned in. You're really tuned in. So, um, so I want to make sure you give like the next 35 minutes or so just God's Word, your undivided attention this morning. So um, uh, I want to start this morning by reading uh, just part of an email that a dad sent to me this week, and I don't, I haven't actually met this father, I just know him through the email, but um, he just said, hey, our, we've been visiting the last few weeks with our, to your church, and, uh, and I want you to let you know that we've got an 8th grader, a ninth grader, and a 10th grader, they've been coming to the Outback, and I guess he's referring mainly to the ninth and 10th grader, but they, um, they mentioned that they were very warmly welcomed, and that other kids drew them into conversations um, when they were here on Sunday, and so um, I want to just have to be an encouragement to you because one of my big passions here at the Outback is making sure that when students come into this building that it's not just a leader who is welcoming and, and hospitable, but you are um, bearing that as well. And so when I hear those kind of things, I want to pass it along to you to let you know, hey, great job. I'm proud of you. And keep getting after it. Keep doing those kinds of things because um, honestly, what grows a youth group is you. And it's because of your hospitality and your community that um, it will grow this thing. It's not just worship, not just teaching. Those things can help. But a student walks into this building not just to hear a message. That might not be the case in the main service over there. Like the main service, what draws people typically is a sermon and worship experience. And then, yeah, relationships are good too, but what really draws them is that experience here, it's the exact opposite. What draws them in this room is going to be you, and if you don't draw them in here, then they will not come in here. And so um, I, want you to, I want to say just an encouraging word to you on that, but don't rest. Don't just kind of get complacent. Um, make sure that we are getting after it when it comes to uh, reaching out to people and, um, and including them, especially when you do tables. It's kind of weird because you're sort of forced into these little little pockets of community, which is by intent, by design, but um, I don't want to let that keep someone out of the circle, so to speak. So make sure that you're keeping after it in that, uh, in that area. So turn with me to Judges chapter 13. And the, the, the video might cut out. It's a small picture. It's, I guess it'll work. You can still read it, right? So um, if, if it does go out on us, then we'll have to do this like New Testament style like Jesus did and uh, just talk, right? Do it the old-fashioned way. In fact, how in the world did Jesus and the disciples change the world with no like pro presenter? I have no idea how they did that. That's just that's a mystery to me. So Ju- Judges 13, verse 1, and it says, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight, or some Bibles say, in the eyes of the Lord, So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. We're going to stay in this first passage for a little bit of time here. So um, whose Bible says, um, did did evil in the eyes of the Lord? Raise your hand. The Bible says eyes. Some Bibles say sight. Same thing. So we hear this statement over and over again, that the Israelites did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. We hear this, like, refrain, this statement over and over again in the book of Judges. In fact, at the end of the book of Judges, it says, in those days, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 
So in Judges, you have this contrast. At the end of the book, you have this contrast of everyone did what was right in his own eyes, so our eyes. But throughout the book, at the beginning of each chapter, you'll see things like they did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so there's this concept of God's eyes and man's eyes. The way man sees things is not always the way God sees things. And so what this passage shows us is two truths that I want you to know about sin this morning. And the first truth about sin that this verse reveals is that sin is not violating just our own standard, but it's to violate God's standard. Sin is not just to violate what you and I see as wrong, but it's to violate what God sees as wrong and sinful. A couple years ago, I was having lunch with a guy that's in our youth group. He's not here today, so don't worry. He's graduated. But uh, we were talking, and he had a girlfriend at the time. And whenever I know of a guy in our group that has a girlfriend, I always had to put him on the spot, and I ask the hard questions, and I'll say things like, so tell me how you're um, doing in your physical relationship. And, uh, and I'll say that out, out, out of the gate, and he'll be usually surprised, like, ask me a question like that. That's personal. I was like, no, it's not personal. Because you've chosen to be in the body of Christ, and I'm your pastor. I'm going to ask you hard questions. And so um, he said, uh, "He said, well, we're, we're doing okay. We, we haven't really, you know, gone all the way. And I'm like, okay, I guess that's good. But can you give me more information here? Like, what's, I said, what's your standard of right and wrong in that area? And he said, well, um, I guess just whatever she's not okay with. And I kind of went, well, what if she's okay with sin? And he said, well, I, I haven't really thought about that. And I said, well, see, I said, dude, you can't, your standard can't be whatever she's not okay with. Because that's kind of where we're at now, is that a guy is considered noble if he says, I won't push her beyond what she doesn't want to do. Like, that's considered noble in our culture now, right? I mean, forget about what God says about sexuality and that kind of thing. But, so here's the deal. Whatever... God says is sin is sin. I don't care what you think about it. I don't care what I think about it. I don't care how you see it or how I see it. Whatever God says is sin is sin. And so when you see the world through the eyes of God, which none of us really do, we have scriptures for that, then um, we can't define what's right and wrong based on what I like, based on how I see things, based on what I think is sinful or not sinful. In our world, people say you can only define sin by what is right for you, what's right and wrong for you. In fact, the real popular song right now uh, by Pharrell Williams, the happy song. You guys know the happy song? You know the happy song, right? I can't play it. I'm not going to sing it for you. But the, the key line in the, in the song is uh, happiness is the truth. And listen, I actually like the song. My, my kids were dancing to it on a Friday night. I like the song a lot. It's, it's catchy. I love it. Um, but I'm not sure if his intention was this or not. It may not be. But the words are, happiness is the truth, and many people live their lives that way, that happiness, how I define happiness, that's also how I define truth. The, the, if something makes me happy, then it's my truth. If something makes you happy, it's your truth. Everyone should live based on their own happiness and define their life uh, based on what makes them happy. And what this does, if we live this way, this sets me up as God and makes my happiness the absolute authority. So what determines how I live my life is what is based on what I think 
makes me happy. So I want to show you this morning how this kind of thinking is, it doesn't even make sense when you really think about it. Think of um, many years ago, you guys know what happened in World War II. The Holocaust killed 6 million Jews. The Nazis did this great evil against um, that, that, that people group. So, so when do we get to say, okay, you guys think 6 million Jews should die and the world has to stand by and watch it or intervene because we all know and agree that's evil and wrong, right? So, so we can't define evil, we can't define right and wrong based on what we think is right and wrong. There has to be this sort of other absolute outside of us standard of right and wrong that we know and agree to. Otherwise, no one can ever call anyone out for anything. That There can be no justice. There can be no governments administering justice if we aren't ascribing to some outside authority from ourselves that says we all agree that killing six million Jews is wrong. Right? So that's on a grand scale. When you look at it your own life, the same truth applies, that you cannot be the arbiter of truth. You can't be the one that says, okay, well, this makes me happy, therefore, this is right for me. This makes him or her happy. This is what's right and wrong for them. There has to be some outside standard, and I think it's God and his word for us. The second point that I want you to see uh, from this passage is that sin is deceptive, causing us to rationalize our actions. And so if I see everything through the eyes of myself and not through the lens of Scripture, then I'm going to let sin deceive me. I'm going to let sin and my own wants and desires keep me from seeing things the way that God wants me to see them. So sin's deceptive. It causes us to rationalize our actions. You know, most of us, we always think of our actions as being pure, don't we? We always think of our motives as, as being pure. Like, I'm, I'm thinking about the best for other people as I do this, whatever that thing is. And there's a, a, an author I read this week. He said this. He says, Satan, Satan paints sin with virtue's colors. So what you and I think of as being virtuous and noble, like the guy I referred to a while ago, that he's thinking, hey, I'm, I just won't make her do whatever she doesn't want to do. That sounds noble and virtuous and right. But when you get down to it, beneath the surface of that, Satan has deceived him into thinking that he's being virtuous when really he's just being selfish, but it has the appearance of being virtuous. Satan paints sin with virtuous colors. He'll make you think that you're doing something virtuous and noble, when in reality, you're just like everybody else. We're all in this sin together. This is the kind of thinking you and I use to justify all kinds of sin. And this is the kind of thinking that we do this because we pay more attention to our own eyes and how I view sin, how I view right and wrong, than how God views it. And so who, whose eyes should matter more to you? Is it your own eyes or is it the eyes of God? And the Israelites did what was evil in the eyes of God, and so God gives them over to the Philistines for 40 years as a result of their idolatry. Look at uh, verse number 2. There is a certain man of Zorah, the tribe of the Danites, so Dan had his own tribe. How awesome is that? Dan Fulmer, was he in the room now still? Is he gone? Anyway, Danites, 
whose name was Manoah. And that's like Noah, but not really Manoah. And his wife was barren. So there's this guy named Manoah. His wife was barren and had no children. We don't know her name. She just was barren and had no children. Verse 3, And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Now, I remind you that whenever you see in the Old Testament this phrase, an angel or the angel of the Lord, who is it? It's actually Jesus, right? This is Jesus before the incarnation. This is Jesus showing up kind of in the appearance of an angel and um, appearing to this woman. So it says, appeared to the woman and said to her, behold. There's that word again. This is how they talk back then. They said things like this, behold. You are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So there's this guy named Manoah. He's got a wife who can't have any kids. And this sounds an awful lot like Abraham and Sarah, other people in the, in the Old Testament that you remember about, that could not have children, and God somehow miraculously allows them to have children. So this is most likely Jesus showing up to this woman. He tells her that she's going to have a son. Verse 4 tells her not to drink um, any wine. Now that's always a good idea when someone's pregnant, but this is for a different reason, and it was because he was supposed to be what's called a Nazarite. Here's what a Nazarite was supposed to be. This is a certain person who is set apart in a special way for God's work and God's service. And this meant three things for someone who was to be a Nazarite. It meant no wine, no haircuts, and no contact with the dead. So this person would start to look kind of crazy when their beard starts to grow out, their hair gets all straggly and long. John the Baptist was this kind of man. He was a Nazarite as well. Um, they can't drink, and they weren't to have any contact with the dead. Not like a psychic person would, but like physical contact with the dead. They can't go in graveyards. They can't um, really go to funerals that much, you know, or not at all, actually. So um, no contact with the dead because they would be considered unclean. And it's not that these things were sinful. It's just that there was these vows they would take to... Um, set apart themselves for special ministry for God. And this is what this baby was going to be set apart for. Verse 5. So not only are they told they're going to have a baby, they're also told he's going to deliver Israel from the Philistines. Now this was really, really, really big news. Because the Israelites have been oppressed by the Philistines for years and years. And so this baby is going to be the deliver, deliverer of the Israelites from the Philistines. Now I'll tell you that, that knowing you're having a kid, not me personally, but knowing that we were going to have a kid, my wife and I, um, was a really, really exciting thing to hear. I mean, it's really cool. When you're a young couple, you'll understand this, that um, I won't, I'll spare you the details, but whenever they take the pregnancy test, okay, uh, and you're waiting for the... Um, the, uh, the thing to say, pregnant or not pregnant, you're waiting for five or six minutes, and finally it shows up on the little screen, pregnant. And you just are like, no way, right? And you're just so excited that you get to call people and say, hey, we're 
you're pregnant. Actually, she's pregnant. I get to hang out and watch TV. And, uh, and so it's this exciting time of life, right? So that's just, that's just me, me having my own, our own kids, right? But if you can imagine this now, listen, if you can imagine this, um, Jesus shows up to tell her, a barren woman, that she's pregnant, and also he's going to deliver the Israelites from the Philip. That's like a triple whammy. That's like three good things. Jesus, you're pregnant, and deliverer. That's really, really, really big news for this woman to hear. So you can imagine she's ecstatic. Here's the good news for her. Most people, when you're about to have a child, you wonder, you think about, like, what are they going to do when they grow up? What are they going to become when they get to be an adult? This woman did not have to think about that. She already knew what he was going to do when he became an adult. You know, uh, my son, Landon, he's um, six now, and he, he has this dream of being a, a trash truck driver. <clears throat> I wish I was joking. And, and so he did pre-K, la- he's in kindergarten now, so he did pre-K last year. And on the day of their pre-K graduation, they like to announce, you know, what award that kid gets. They give an award to every child because every child's a winner. And, uh, and every kid gets an award. And so he's walking across the stage, and they also announce to the crowd that's there, all the parents, what that kid wants to be when they grow up. And so you see all these kids walking through, and this one girl's like, oh, she wants to be a nurse. Oh, she wants to be an artist. She wants to be a, um, a doctor. And then my son is like the last one to go. And they say, and Landon wants to be a trash truck driver. And I was like trying to compensate for, you know, how I felt about that. And I was like, woohoo, all right, woo, awesome. Looking around awkwardly at the parents like, yeah, we're supportive. We're supportive. And then about uh, two months ago, I said to him, he, he was talking about science and everything. And I said, so, so what do you think you want to be when you grow up? And he's like, eh, maybe a doctor. And I was like, all right, that's cool. And a trash truck driver. I was like, Landon, you can't do both. You'll be way busy as a doctor. Too busy to be a trash truck driver, I might add. So, um, so as a parent, you're always thinking about, like, what's my kid going to do when they get to be an adult? And the good news for this woman is she had, she, she knew, she was told from the very outset, this is what your son is going to do when he becomes um, an adult. She already knew. And so after this, what does she do? She goes and she tells her husband the the news. She goes and look at verse 6. She says, Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, there's that word again, You shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. So she goes and tells her husband the news. And um, she says, this guy appeared to me, told me we're going to have a son. I don't know the guy's name or where he's from. I just know that he showed up and told me this. And if you are the husband, what are you probably going to do at that point? You're going to want some confirmation about this little event. 
Just like as a husband, I'd be like, let me see that pregnancy test. Okay, it says pregnant. For, for her, for him, he's like, okay, I want to talk to this guy with some random dude just showed up and told you this information. I want to know who this guy is. And so he goes to God, and he seeks confirmation in verse 8. Look at verse 8. It says, Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. So Manoah wants a little bit of a do-over. He says, if my kid's going to be so important, I don't want to mess this up. I want to make sure that we do this the right way. If he's supposed to deliver Israel, can you tell me how we're supposed to raise this young man? And so the angel who's really Jesus comes back again, and Manoah speaks to him. And we see a pattern throughout Judges, and it's this. When someone needs confirmation, God tends to give. We saw this with Gideon. God tends to show up and give them that confirmation. Look at verse 12. So the man, Jesus, appears to Manoah, and it says, And Manoah said, verse 12, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life, and what is his mission? So this dad wants just a few more details before he sets off on this journey to raise this young man. And so he wants some more details, but here's what's interesting. Jesus, the angel in the story, doesn't give them more details. He just repeats what he told the wife earlier. And I want you to see here, at times, God's going to send you in a direction, but he doesn't always fill in the details for you. He's going to say, just trust me. This is about faith. You've got to trust me that I've got your best interest in mind. Now watch this. So Manoah asked God for more instructions, more directions, but God doesn't give it to him. But instead, here's what God does. God could have easily said, no, I'm not going to have the angel show up again. I'm not going to do that. But God did do that because God gives him himself. Whenever he needs confirmation, he doesn't give more information. He actually gives him himself. He shows up again in his presence and says, okay, I'm here. I can confirm for you what happened, but I'm not going to give you any more than that. And so when the guy is looking for more instructions, more details, more information, instead of him getting that, what does he get? He gets the presence of God. He gets God himself showing up in this manifestation to give him confirmation. Tim Keller says, God gives us something much better than a guidebook. He gives us himself. And I think this is a reminder for this man that all the way through, all the questions you have, all the doubts that you have, you're going to have me. You're going to have me right by your side to walk with you through this. And so Manoah's looking for like a how-to guide, like a, you know, idiot's guide to raising judges, right? He's looking for like a how-to guide on how do I, how do, I do this? How do I raise up a judge for Israel? So they can deliver, he can deliver him from the, them from the, uh, the Philistines. And so instead of God giving him what he wants, he gives him himself. And I think this is important for us because we need to know 
whatever you're dealing with today, whatever questions and doubts you have today, you need to know that what's better for you than just more information and more details about your future, the most important thing for you is going to be God's presence. You understanding the nature of who God is and His character. That is going to be the most important thing for you to hang on to in times of suffering, in times of doubt, in whatever you're going through in life, the most important thing for you is going to be understanding God's nature and His character way more than understanding just the details and the instructions about the future. You know, I think a, a perfect picture, um, you know, we want, we want God to show up and give us a rule book, especially at your age. You want, you want God to give you a rule book on dating, a rule book on, okay, um, finding a college, finding a job, those kinds of things. And when you're in those kind, having those kinds of questions, I think what God wants you to know is that you have me. You've got the Holy Spirit. You've got my presence in you as the Holy Spirit guiding you and leading you. And my presence is all you need in these kinds of situations. I think um, it, we know it's true that the older a child gets, the older a kid gets, the fewer details they need from me to live their life, right? That's the way it's supposed to work. And so with my, with my kids, when they first were born, we've got we've to like set up the house to prevent death, right? We have to put plastic things in, this, in the electrical outlets because, I mean, my daughter, my son will go and say, hey, I could die, you know, and just stick their finger in the sockets and try to eat, like, Comet out of the Comet can beneath the sink if they don't put, like, a little... A little gate on that thing, right? So we've got to find ways with a child to prevent them from killing themselves, okay? But here's the deal. If, if we're at the age of 10, and I'm still having to use those little rules and, and details and whatnot to, to keep them from killing themselves, is that, is that progress? That's not progress. And, and so the same is true of us. Like In, in our walk with, walk with God, is like, is that the older you get in your walk with God, the, the fewer details and rules and regulations you should need because you've got the Holy Spirit guiding you, helping you make wise choices and decisions, and you no longer need someone to sit there and hold your hand and say, this is exactly how I want you to do this. And this is what's happening here is that God is saying, I'm not going to give you all the details. You've just got to trust me. The desire that we see throughout Scripture is that God wants us to be transformed so that we can make those kinds of decisions based on His Word, based on being led by the Holy Spirit. I want to summarize for you just verses 13 to 18. So here's what happens. The angel repeats his previous instructions. Then Manoah wants to be hospitable, so he offers to cook some goat barbecue. That's my interpretation of that passage. And... Uh, the angel tells him to make a sacrifice instead of a meal. And so while the angel, or Jesus, is still there, he makes this sacrifice to God. Now watch what happens in verse 19 to 20. This is kind of cool. Look at verse 19. It says, So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar... The angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar 
Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. And so at this point, they don't even know this is even an angel or Jesus. They just think it's a dude just showing up as a messenger. It could be a prophet, whoever. But now they know that we've just been in the presence of God in some way, shape, or form. And so the only proper response when you know you've been in God's presence is to fall on your face and worship Him. And worship. Go down to verse uh, 24. It says, And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in whatever that place is between Zorah and Eshtol. So this is Samson. And as he grows, listen, as he grows, God begins to stir in him his mission, what he's going to do for Israel. God begins to stir that up in him. This is just what God does in us. Whenever God prepares you for a mission, he begins to stir you up for that mission and get you ready and stir your heart and stir your affections towards that mission, whatever that mission is. I can think back to when I first began to feel the, this tug and this pull into ministry because um, many of you guys know this story, but I didn't sign up. I didn't come out of the womb saying, like, I want to be a pastor. Woohoo! That wasn't what I set out to do. That scared, that terrified me, the whole idea. Never even thought about it until I got to college. Because I, I thought I wasn't, that's not me. I'm not cut out for that. That's just not me. I don't want to do that. But God began to stir something up in me as I was volunteering with high school students. And I thought, man, I really love this. Like, I began to have this passion and a desire to work especially with high school because I saw that age as just pivotal. I saw that age for me and also for you as just a pivotal time of life. And I began to see this, this, this questioning and this, this stirring in high school students that I worked with at the time that, man, they're wanting answers. They're wanting to deal with their doubts. They're wanting to deal with how do I deal with suffering. They're wanting to have these questions answered. And I would love to be someone who kind of walks along with them in that part of their life. And people always ask me questions like, as a pastor in my position, you, you get questions like this from people. Yeah, so, uh, like, what do you see yourself doing in five years? And part of me wants to say, well, you know, celebrating the five-year anniversary of you asking me that question, right? And, uh, but what I really, really say to them, instead of insulting them that way, is, um, is I say, look, I love what I'm doing now, and I hope I do it for a long, long time. I don't know when that's going to be, but for a long time. And the reason for that is because I love working with this age group for that reason. God has stirred me up to work with you and to pastor you and to shepherd you. And many of you have God stirring up something in you. He's wired you for a mission. He has, he has set you on a course, and he is stirring you up even now. And you'll see that mission come to fruition after you graduate high school, possibly. Many of you guys are doing that right now through impact and mission trips and so on. But God is stirring things in you right now. And it's the Holy Spirit at work, and he's preparing you for that mission that he has for you. And I want to say to you that, I, that I'm, I'm so proud of many of you, so proud of all of you, so proud of many of you because of just how you rise to the challenge and, and, and you really want 
to be used by God and to do great things for God. And so I love pastoring you and, and watching you uh, grow and develop in those ways. And so what I want to do this morning is just, um, I want you to just kind of close your eyes for a second. And I want to um, just close out and I want to pray for you because I think what's happening um, in some of you right now is that somebody in the room may not even be a believer yet. Go ahead and close your eyes and just kind of think and just pray for a second. And if there's anyone in the room that's not a believer this morning, I want to remind you this morning that um, this story of Samson actually points us to Jesus. Because Jesus was born to save. Samson was born to save. Every story in the Bible points eventually to Jesus Christ as God, as our Savior. And if you're someone this morning that has never surrendered your life to Christ, I want you just right now as I'm talking, just quietly just pray and tell God this morning that you want to surrender your life to Him. That as the story of Samson points us to Jesus, my hope is that it would point you to Jesus knowing that Jesus Christ came onto this earth. He was born to save. He was born to save. And He offers that salvation to you. And so my hope, I'm not going to lead you in some magic formula prayer. I just want to tell you this morning that if that's you, if you're someone that you're convicted by what I'm saying and you know you are not following Christ, you're not a follower of Christ, you have not surrendered your life to Him this morning, that I want to invite you this morning to do that to tell him through prayer either here this morning as you sit in this room or when you go home later and thought about it a little bit, but think deeply about this question. Do I want to follow Jesus or follow my own way? And so this morning I want to invite you to respond in faith and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his work for you on the cross. The fact that he, he paid the price for your sin on that cross. I want to invite you this morning to put your faith and trust in that truth and to become a Christian this morning and to follow him for the rest of your life. And if you're someone that's convicted by that this morning and you, and you think to yourself, yeah, that's me. I want to make that decision this morning. I want you to come tell me at some point. If not today, then, then Wednesday or next Sunday or whenever. I want you to tell us that you've made that decision to follow Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray for you, and you guys can have some discussion here at the end. Let's pray. God, I just pray this morning that, um, that your words would sink into our hearts and our souls, that we would understand that everything we read in this book ultimately points us to you and your son dying for us on the cross. We know that you're born to save us in much the same way Samson was born to save Israel. We pray, God, that anyone here this morning does not know you we pray that they would come to know you and want to follow you with their entire lives. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Go into your discussion questions, and you guys can dismiss whenever you're done doing that.